Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Afternoon. Remember what I said yesterday, how when you start feeling peaceful, usually there's something around the corner. So according to the notes in the box, there's been a lot around the corner uh, for many of you. Yesterday, we explored the story where Dongshan is leaving his teacher, Yunyan, and says, when I leave, how should I remember you? And Yunyan says, just this is it. Then, um, there was another part to the story, which is Yunyan was quiet, Dongshan was quiet, and then Yunyan said to Dongshan, you're in charge of this great matter. You must be thoroughgoing. So, it's not enough just to say, this is it. It's not enough just to be attentive, but it means that you're in charge of this serious matter of life and death. You know the chant that we do? Life and death is of supreme importance. So you need to be thoroughgoing, which means uh, the practice has to go all the way through. All the way through. All the way through your heart, all the way through your body, and all the way through your life. Every aspect of your life. Because what we're trying to do here is to see things as true as possible. Not getting fooled. And you can see after a couple days of sitting still how easily we get fooled. So we're trying to know with a certain depth and a certain equanimity and a certain wisdom what's really happening. So if some anger comes up We need to not get lost in the category angry, anxious, irritable. And we need to make this pivot where you can explore the fluidity of what that really is. Because as soon as we have fluidity, we have life. We have healing. And when it's fixed, it's fixed. 
and we're frozen. I'm angry at John. I'm angry at Jennifer, whatever. I'm going to be angry forever. Then we turn and we say, oh, what's going on here? What is this? What does this feel like? And then we do the practice, just this. And then we see underneath our anger is um, hurt or helplessness. Anger is what we pick up when, when we feel helpless so that we can have some power. <clears throat> so we use this mindfulness practice to have insight into the truth of change and to see change as the ground of everything so that whatever field we're in, it's workable. And then there's some learning because whatever we're in, it doesn't take up all the space. There's some breathing around it. There's some space around it. And so in the meditation practice, it's important to develop uh, relaxation. This is the secret, is that uh, people think that to get more concentrated and to be more alert, they have to be like more uptight. <laughs> no, really, you might laugh, but I bet you do it. I bet when I say be more mindful, you get a little bit more uptight. But actually the key to deepening concentration is to, to push the envelope of relaxation deeper and deeper without losing the clarity that you have right now. So you want to keep pushing the edge of relaxation. When you're sitting, just completely relaxed, completely open. And then, as soon as you get dull, you're falling away. And this is called shamatha, which has in it that word sham again, which is, means calm, or ease, or peace. So, you're in charge of this great matter. You must be thoroughgoing. In other words, if this is your life, you've got to do something about it. Take it seriously. Now, in this context, Yunyan was teaching Dongshan and knows that Dongshan is leaving. He's empowered to go teach. And he's saying, if you're going to go teach, this has to be right through you and in everything that you do. So I don't recommend teaching for anybody. Because then like you can't hide anymore. So I wanted to tell you today another story about Dongshan as a way to talk about what I think uh, this practice leads to, which is um, creativity and empathy. So first the story. Um, this is years later, Dongshan is a teacher. He's sitting at the front of the room and he says to the community, it's the beginning of autumn, the end of summer, and you will go. So, that, so this is the end of the retreat. Have you noticed that these, a lot of stories about Dongshan, it just occurred to me, are about endings. I hadn't realized that until just now. Actually, there's quite a few of them. So it's the ending of the retreat, 
And he says, it's the beginning of autumn, the end of summer, and you will go, some to the east and some to the west. You should go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. You should go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. Then he said, he, he seems to be someone who gets lost a little bit in thought, and, like in these pauses, and then he says, but where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go there? In other words, how are you going to find a place where there's no grass for 10,000 miles? And then one student says, named Shishuang says, going out the gate, immediately there's grass. And then another student named Dayang said, I'd say that not even going out the gate, there is grass everywhere. So let me give you some context to this. All over China, every season, uh, monks and nuns would travel to monasteries uh, to go practice. Uh, maybe they lived in villages or in cities. They lived with families. They were gardeners or they worked in a marketplace. And then they would travel by foot over mountains to these uh, beautiful valleys where there were uh, secluded monasteries. And you know, maybe what we're doing is kind of like that also, isn't it? We have these crazy busy lives. Maybe you're parenting or maybe you have a busy career or maybe you have an inbox. <laughs> Do you know that April 30th was inbox forgiveness month? Do you know about this? It's called, it was called Inbox Debt Forgiveness Month. Did anybody do this? No. You, don't, you should know about this. We don't, we, I don't know about it. So that. basically, on April 30th, you're supposed to go through your inbox and all the emails you're avoiding sending, you just forgive yourself and then you send them all. Does anybody have like a lot of drafts? Mm -mm. And then you just haven't sent that email yet? Or you have an inbox and you just don't know how to reply? Mm -hmm. So on April 30th, you reply for the year all the emails that you've avoided. So we get to wait till next year. So you can wait till next year now. Yeah. So um, when, it, when, when the retreat was over, of course, uh, everybody like us, we'll have to go back to our families. And um, so the retreat is a very sacred place. It's sacred because um, you get to work with grass. Now grass is um, a weed. So one way you can tell this story. I'll read it again that way. Dongshan said, It's the beginning of autumn, the end of summer. It's the end of the retreat. You will go, some to the east, some to the west. You should go where there are no weeds for 10,000 miles. Then he said, But where there aren't weeds for 10,000 miles, how can you go there? In other words, where are there no weeds? And then one student says, very perceptively, going out the gate, so you leave, just, just as you leave the monastery, there's going to be weeds, a lot of thorns, brambles. And then another student said, I'd say that not even leaving the gate, there are weeds everywhere. And there should be one more student who says, I don't even get off my cushion, and all I see are weeds. 
So what are weeds? Uh, grass grows every minute everywhere. Have you seen this? You don't watch your breath for one second and weeds start growing. But actually, this is natural. The earth sprouts weeds in the same way that the liver produces bile and in the same way that the mind produces thoughts. So we need to look more closely at how we get into trouble. We need to notice, first of all, that something's always arising in your heart, something's always arising in your body, something's always arising in your mind, and life is just like this. And if you thought that you could come and sit still and you wouldn't have any thoughts, then that thought is going to make you suffer. Because that's not being with what is, that's trying to get out of what is. I need some privileged state where there's not a weed. But if you look closely, and I, I, I think you should all go out and do this after the talk, if you look closely at every blade of grass, really, really closely, then you'll see that sitting on the top of every blade of grass is a little Buddha. And if you go out and look at all the trees, especially the pine needles, and you look at the end of a pine needle, you'll see that right at the very tip of that pine needle is a tiny little Buddha. And if you look at whatever weeds are coming up in your heart on this retreat, you'll see that right there, if you look closely, that weed is a potential for awakening. That weed gives you the opportunity to wake up, especially the weeds that we really, really, really don't want to deal with. The weeds of the inbox, let's call them. Look at the tip of any trouble or any conflict in your relationships or even just in your own heart, and you'll see that right at the tip is a small Buddha. Most of the time, we see our reactions as really big problems, big fires. Like the fires I talked about yesterday, greed, anger, and delusion. And when you think of your reactivity as greed, anger, and delusion, we tend to think of it as very dramatic and a very pronounced emotional reaction. But what I want to encourage you to look at for the rest of the retreat is that uh, the real reactivity that causes problems is the low-grade, persistent thinking. The big problems, you don't have to worry about them. The really big weeds, you can recognize them. You look out on the grass and you see there's a few big ones. You see where they are, you recognize them, you know them, especially if they've been around for 20, 30, 40 years. <laughs> Which some have, let's not pretend. But the problem is all the little ones. I remember as a kid, lying in bed, having a hard time falling to sleep, and wondering, is this monologue ever going to shut off? Have you ever had this experience? Maybe you had it today. <laughs> Maybe you bowed to the cushion, and then you sat down, and you thought, did I bow? I'm not sure if I bowed. There's a great story about a Zen teacher named Reb Anderson. 
where um, he was on his way to give a talk at the San Francisco Zen Center. He was in his cabin, or at uh, Green Gulch, and he was in his cabin, and he started walking uh, to give his talk. Uh, in Zen, I don't know if you know, but the teachers wear lots of robes. And then he realized, halfway through to the talk, he didn't remember anything he had just done. So the story is, he goes back to his cabin, he takes off all of his clothes, and then he puts them on again. Paying attention, puts on his robes again, and then walks and gives the talk. Now, that's a half a kilometer, maybe. Do you know what kilometers are? (laughs) But some of us, we've been going like five or ten years or more, just not there at all. And then when you look closely at these monologues, most of them are infused with worry. Worry about a way we could have responded. Worry about another move we could have made. So, the Buddha had something very interesting to say about these weeds, which uh, gets translated as the first noble truth which usually gets translated as, life is a bummer. <laughs> it's interesting, the words he used in Sanskrit, because, or in uh, Pali. So the first word is dukkha, which let's just call suffering for now. And he defines suffering, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, uh, losing what you love, and being in a psychophysical experience which basically means your whole life. When you hear the word dukkha, you should just translate it as life. Because actually it's a good translation because if you have a hard time and it's one of those hard times that no advice can fix, somebody will say to you, you know what, that's life. That's life. And they're saying that's dukkha, this is life. And the word he used to temper the word dukkha, to describe the word dukkha, rather, is uh, parinya. So par, there's lots of yoga term uh, postures with the word par. What's, if the yoga posture has the word par or vrit or both in front of it, what is it? It's a twist. It's a revolved pose. So par means around. Okay? So around dukkha. So you could translate this as embracing Dukkha. Or the best English word would be uh, to comprehend, to, kn- to fully know. Yeah. Parinya. So a par is around, and nya is the Pali word for the Sanskrit word nya, which is where you get the English word knowledge or kno, <laughs> via the Latin gnosis which eventually goes silent. But it all comes back to this word, nya, to know. Um, so around, knowing, life. So the first teaching of the Buddha is exactly this, is embrace life. Embrace life. And then when you embrace life, when you turn towards the weeds, then reactivity arises 
and we let go of our reactivity. This is a very important point I want you to hear clearly. You don't let go of the content of what's arising. So if you have a thought that keeps coming back, you don't let go of that thought. If you have pain that keeps coming up, you don't let go of the pain. What you're letting go of is your reaction to the weeds. Do you understand the distinction? So when people say, oh, I keep having this reoccurring thought, and someone says, oh, just let go of it, that's like telling someone with OCD to stop touching the doorknob. <laughs> well, just don't touch the doorknob. <laughs> but what we're letting go of is our reactivity. And then we get to um, uh, my favorite teaching which is exactly the same in the Yoga Sutra as it is in early Buddhism, known as the first no a third noble truth, which is um, nirodha. Nirodha means uh, to know cessation. Now, because we're so used to constantly reacting to everything, Often, we miss those moments of niroda, where we're not reacting to something. I had this last night. In the evening, I walked outside. The moon was pretty much full. Good enough. Good enough moon. And um, it was warm. And I, I had this really wonderful, joyous feeling. And then... Uh, I remembered this feeling. Oh, this is the feeling when school's about to end. And you're 11. And you don't have to go home to do any homework. And the air is almost the same temperature as your body. Do you know that feeling? That's how I felt last night. So then you know that feeling. And you rest in that feeling, in that sense, in the same way that you bring your mindfulness to the reactivity. And I think we miss that a lot. So this is a really important point, which is to know cessation. Now, I'm going to argue that the first teaching and the third teaching are actually exactly the same. To really embrace life is to, to fully know the experience of life unconditioned by reactivity. The only way to really know your life is to experience it unconditioned by reactivity. Knowing that that has nothing to do with whether there are weeds or not. Because if you think, oh, I'm going to meditate so I can be peaceful and then there aren't, there aren't going to be any weeds, that's trying to let go of the weeds. But you can't control the weeds. I don't know here if anybody has a lawn. But you can't control the weeds. So, in the Yoga Sutra, the sentence is uh, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha. That yoga, which I translate as intimacy, is the Nirodha knowing the cessation of Chitta Vritti. Vritti is a turning, and Chitta is your attention. So that intimacy is knowing the cessation of the turnings 
of your repetitive mind. Do you know the part of your mind that goes in loops? When you can experience the absence or the cessation of that looping, intimacy arises. So, we're told, go somewhere where there isn't an inch of grass. And then the teacher corrects himself and says, oh, how could you go somewhere where there is no grass? And then a student says, just go to the gate and there's no grass. And I would say, if this happened in this room, somebody, probably Kathleen, would say, actually, I'm just sitting on my cushion and my mind is a disaster. Would you say that? There's weeds everywhere. There's weeds everywhere. Now, we all know that if you sit, and I always say this, and your technique is not great, it doesn't matter. Even if you don't have any technique, you sit in this room with everybody here, and your whole nervous system will calm down. We need it so much. You can't just go and go and go and go and go. And then, in the space, in the field, in the open field that opens up, when we're not constantly in reactive mode, our imagination flourishes. And this ability to reimagine our moment-to-moment -moment experience is what cures us, actually. It's what cures our neuroses, is that we can reimagine the conditions we're in from another perspective. And maybe the definition of being neurotic is that you can't see what's happening for you from any other perspective. Happens when we're angry too, right? When you're angry, it's really hard to see the situation from another perspective. So I wanted to read uh, to you from a one. Has anybody read this book, The Empathy Exams? Yes. By Leslie Jameson. This is, I love this book so much. Um, she, she was, uh, she's a writer. Uh, she wrote um, a great novel called The Gin Closet. And then... Um, she was a standardized patient. Do you, do you have those in the United States? Do you have that term, standardized? Oh, when you're in medical school, before you graduate, you have actors come in and act out certain symptoms. And then you practice like your bedside manner and your uh, diagnoses and so on. So she was one of these uh, patients who was acting different parts. And uh, after years of doing this, she started to think about empathy. When does she feel somebody's truly being empathic. And it turns out it's not what she expects. So, so I'll read to you a little bit. Uh, in this section, she's talking about uh, her brother, who's diagnosed with Bell's palsy. During the months of my brother's Bell's palsy, whenever I woke up in the morning and checked my face for a fallen cheek, a drooping eye, a collapsed smile, I wasn't ministering to anyone. I wasn't feeling towards my brother so much as I was feeling toward a version of myself. A self that didn't exist, but theoretically shared his misfortune. 
I wonder if empathy has always been this. In every case, just a bout of hypothetical self-pity projected onto someone else. We care about ourselves. Of course we do. Maybe some good comes from it. If I imagine myself fiercely into my brother's pain, I get some sense, perhaps, of what he might want or need because I think I would want this. I would need this. But it also seems like a fragile pretext, turning his misfortunes into an opportunity to indulge pet fears of my own devising. I wonder what parts of my brain light up when the med student asks me, how does that make you feel? Or which parts of their brain start glowing when I say, the pain in my abdomen is a 10. My condition isn't real. I know this. They know this. I'm just going through the motions. They're simply going through the motions. But motions can be more than rote. They don't just express feeling. They can give birth to it. Empathy isn't something that happens to us, a meteor shower of synapses firing across the brain. It's a choice we make to pay attention to extend ourselves. It's made of exertion, the dowdier cousin of impulse. Sometimes we care for another because we know we should, or because it's asked for, but this doesn't make our caring hollow. The act of choosing simply means we've committed ourselves to a set of behaviors greater than the sum of our individual inclinations. I will listen to his sadness even when I'm deep in my own. <clears throat> and this last part here. In this sense, empathy isn't just measured by a checklist item 31, voiced empathy for my situation, but by every item that gauges how thoroughly my experience has been imagined. Empathy isn't just remembering to say, oh, that must be really hard. It's figuring out how to bring difficulty into the light so it can be seen at all. Empathy is not just listening. It's asking the questions whose answers need to be listened to. Empathy requires inquiry as much as imagination. Empathy requires knowing you know nothing. Isn't that last sentence good? So we often think of empathy nowadays, they talk about it as mere neurons, you know. You just, somebody's sad, you feel the sadness, it shows up in your face. But it's more than this. It has to do with our capacity to imagine somebody else's experience and then to ask about it. If somebody is feeling down and you say, that must be really hard, they're not going to feel much empathy. But if someone's down and you say, I don't know what that experience is like, what's that like for you? Or you can say, I've been down, but it might not be the way you're down now. What's it like for you? What do you need? What can I bring you? So we need this capacity to stop, to recognize what's going on, to suspend our reactivity. And as soon as you suspend your reactivity, an imaginative response will show up. Do you know that experience where somebody asks you when you're having a tough time, hey, what's it like for you? <coughs> and do you know the experience where you're having a tough time and someone just starts giving you advice? 
and they're not really there. So empathy is a way of using our attention. It's an attitude. It's not a feeling. It's an attitude. It's a form of love. And it doesn't take much to love someone. You just give them your attention. And you can try this in your own heart. You're sitting there in all the weeds. And then you just give it your attention. Your kind, equanimous attention. So empathy is a force of attention. Very powerful. And the reason why this is so important is because we're living in an era where we're so self-involved that we disregard people. We're indifferent to people. This is the greatest sickness, is being indifferent to people. And you do it all the time. I do it all the time. You know how you do it? You meet someone and you're looking through them. You're looking right through them at what you want or what you need or what you think about them. I remember doing some uh, work in the streets in Toronto many years ago and the instruction I got is when you start working with homeless populations, uh, when you want to talk to someone, uh, don't come straight at them. Because they're used to people just seeing right through them. So instead, come up from the side. So if they're walking, don't walk towards them. Just come up by the side. Angle up to them. Not head on. And then you're together. This is helpful when you want to have conversations about sex with teenagers. My friend told me, Michael, I'm going to give you some advice. When you have to start having conversations with your son about sex, do it in the car when you're sitting next to them. (laughs) So maybe if you're sitting in the weeds also, you need to just... Sidle up, saddle up, what do they say? Sidle up? Sidle up. Whatever that means, I don't know what it means. But it sounds great. Bucking like a cowboy. Walking like a cowboy. So let's sum up. Here's the practice. The practice is, you can't go anywhere where there are no weeds. But the weeds are okay. It's not such a big deal. But what we do is we add weeds on top of weeds. Don't we? Did you see it today? One small thing. And you can just make such a big production out of it. So our job is to bring attention to what's showing up in a way where we've established some equanimity so that we can embrace what's happening. Not head on like this, but you just brush up against what's happening.
And then you let what's happening, this is the pivot move, you let what's happening become more fluid. So you say, oh, it's just this. What is this? What is this? And then you see it's many things. So this is the key to healing, is that you want the, the fixed thing to become a uh, process. Many things. You want it to be many things. You want to unpack it. So it's many things. I remember we learned, a, I studied psychoanalysis, and one of the things we did in, in training was always, like, be on the lookout. When you ask somebody about a parent, when they have, like, one very well-worked-out paragraph about their mother, about their father, about a sibling, about an ex. You ask them, oh, what was your ex like? And when they say it, you can just tell, oh, that was really, that's been told a lot. And what we see is we need to always be telling new stories about our past. Uh, so, so in a way, I often think psychotherapy is just a process of redescription. Redescribing our experience to keep it fluid. Because some stories really imprison us. And some stories really wake us up. Then we also should know what it feels like in the absence of reactivity. That's niroda. And then in that absence of reactivity, usually a new story shows up. The imagination shows up. So when you sit, it's important that your posture is really good. Upright, attentive, and totally relaxed. Totally relaxed. First, you feel your breathing. And then, once the breath is settled, you can let go of your breath and just be open to whatever's happening. Don't hold on to your breathing anymore. And then after a while, you'll start to think, oh, the birds sound so nice. We should move here. How could I? I should get a hermitage here. And I just want to live here. And I think I'm going to go on more retreats with Michael because uh, I'm not listening to anything he says, but it's just nice to be with him. You know? <laughs> And then uh, your mind just goes off. And then you have to start back at the posture, release the tongue, come back to your breathing. And then after a while, your breath gets really calm, and then you let go of your breath again. And then you just open up to what's happening. Just this. And then you have a real skill because you don't know how you're going to need to serve. Next year, the year after, you don't know. So we cultivate this skill so that we can have real tools to bring back to the world. So you can meet the weeds in your own life and other people's weeds. 
There's a lot. We should legalize weeds. <laughs> we should say to people, it's okay. You don't have to hide them. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. Um, maybe we can stretch our legs and then we can have time for a discussion. Maybe a shorter discussion than yesterday. <laughs>